Amen, amen. If you, if you guys are having a seat, we want to remember, remind those with little kids that we do have nursery available. Um, that is from uh, basically three and under. So if you have young ones that are three and under, we'd love for you to uh, uh, let them go with our workers. You don't have to. There's no obligation, but we, uh, we do provide that as an, as an option for you guys. Uh, for the rest of you guys that are here, we want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to the book of uh, Isaiah as uh, we are going to come to really, I said the end, the capstone, if you will, of a discussion on the holiness of God. Now, I realize, and I hope you do too, that, that there is, I mean, we could spend the rest of our life uh, talking about the holiness of God and still never really fully comprehend it. Um, my goal here wasn't to do an exhaustive study on the, on the holiness of God. My goal here was to uh, bring a greater awareness of His holiness and the need that we have to serve Him and to be a part of what He's called us to do. See, the problem is we don't really understand uh, the holy or the sacred like we should. We live in a society that's mostly human-centric. We spend most of our lives uh, living and working around people who are focusing their attentions on ourselves and each other. And to the point where we oftentimes think that the highest authority in our lives is ourselves. And that's frustrating. Um, oftentimes you'll hear the words, I don't know, if you're a parent, you've probably heard this more times than you really want to remember, the words, that's not fair. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, well, if, you're, if you haven't heard that, then you're not a parent. Because um, I hear that all the time. That's not fair. And, you know, the sad part is, is that we oftentimes carry that on even beyond childhood into our adult life. We may not utter those words, but in the back of our mind, we're thinking that. We think that because we believe that we, that we deserve certain things, that we have rights, and, and, um, and that we should have those rights represented. But oftentimes, in fact, most times, we often don't apply that same logic to God. What about God's rights? What about the things that belong to Him? What about his right due and what's fair for him? When was the last time that we were struck in awe at the concept of being part of the body of Christ? Have you ever thought about that for a minute? You know, we have an incredible privilege. When Jesus died on the cross and he was resurrected and and the disciples then um, sallied forth to carry that message of good news to the entire world, we have this incredible body of work of of their ministry to the world, the first century church. We call that the New Testament. And in the New Testament, we oftentimes see the discussion of the idea of this body of Christ. Paul talks about it quite a bit, the idea that we're part of his body. Have you ever, underst- have you ever really thought about this idea and this concept and just fleshed that out in your mind, what that really means? I mean, think about it. Paul mentions this as a profound mystery, the idea that we are going to join ourselves to a God who is completely transcendent. His light, his understanding, his everything about him is so much greater than anything we can comprehend. It's so much higher than our ability to understand or even begin to approach. But yet we have the opportunity to experience and even have a glimpse of having that majesty and that glory of God sort of investing in us. When we are able to attach ourselves because of his power, his authority to his body, we become part of that. And that's an powerful thing. You know, Paul glimpsed the glory of God on that Damascus road. 
and it impacted his theology and caused him to understand God's purpose in his life in a completely new way. A lot of times we come to church and we just, we're going through the motions. I mean, it is the Sunday before Christmas. So we expect that there are going to be even more people here on Sunday than we normally get. Because people feel like on at least Christmas and Easter, that's the times you want to be as close as you can to God. And so we often feel like we're doing this as a favor for God. Or sometimes we just do this because it's what we think we should do. But I think what we really need, each and every one of us, is a Damascus Road experience. We need to have God real and transcendent in front of our face that we might be able to open up our eyes and recognize that our life is made for more than just sitting a pew and staring at a hymn book. We are called to serve Him in a mighty and powerful way. Not all of us are called the same because there are hands in the body of Christ, there are feet, there are ears, there are eyes, there are toenails. I don't know what God's called you to be. But you need to find that calling and ask God to help you fulfill it. When we're dealing with these limited manifestations throughout Scripture, these theophanies, if you will, oftentimes what ends up happening is is they try to put them in perspective that we can understand. We see that in the life of Isaiah, in chapter 6 in the book of Isaiah. I'm just going to read the first uh, seven verses, and we're going to try to break it down a little bit. So I encourage you to follow along with me as, as I read this. In the, year of the Lord, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. The seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King of the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal. And that burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth, and with it he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away from you. Your sin is forgiven. And we might be able to get a little further than that, but the story obviously goes on. But I want to just take it back to the very beginning, the first verse, and and sort of lay out the, the idea here so you guys can understand what's happening. Many people look at this, chapter 6, as the initial commissioning of Isaiah, as though he is beginning his inauguration into the, into the work of being a prophet. But I think that that's a misreading of this, past, this whole book, actually, um, and, a, and not a complete understanding of what's actually happening. You see, up to this point, there are five other chapters before this. And if you read those first five chapters, you begin to get the sense that, that Isaiah was already acting in his in his public ministry as a prophet. He was already going through the motions of his ministry, filling God's commandment. But you see, after chapter 6 happens, there's a shift in the tone of the book. The book is not the same from chapter 6 all the way to the end. It changes in its flavor and its consistency if you read through it. So even a casual reading of the book of Isaiah will lead you to understand that there's just something different than an inaugural calling. 
You know, all of us can say that we can, rem- well, hopefully, if you're a Christian and, you, and you've accepted Christ your Savior, all of us can point back to a time where Christ spoke to us, where he, he, he made his presence and knowledge known to you in one way or the other. Some of us, it's audible. Sometimes it's just a recognition of our sins. Sometimes it's just a, an overwhelming desire to know him more. Depending upon how God has spoken to you, we all can point back to that point where we said, this was the moment that Christ changed my soul. This is, I'm not saying that Isaiah was saved here, but this was obviously a moment where Isaiah's ministry was changed. This was much like what we saw with the burning bush and Moses, much like that Damascus road conversion with, um, with Paul. This was what we call a theophany. God showed up because he had a specific call that he wanted to deliver to Isaiah, a change in his focus in his ministry as he is beginning to lay out a, a plan. And if you read the plan, I tell you, I, we're not gonna, we don't have time this morning to read um, the entirety of this uh, chapter 6, but read it. I mean, it's actually kind of interesting. We all love chapter 8 where he said, or chapter 7, no, chapter 8, when he said, verse 8, when he says, the voice of the Lord called out saying, whom shall I send? And, and it was Isaiah says, oh, here am I, send me. But we oftentimes don't read the rest of that. The rest of it follows after that. God says, you're really going to have a terrible ministry. I mean, you're going to speak and nobody's going to listen. Uh, you're going to preach and you're going to teach and nobody's going to be moved. In fact, because of your preaching and teaching, the entire nation of Israel's heart's going to be hardened. Basically, you're going you're, you're gonna to watch your church die. What? What pastor wants to hear that message? I mean, that's a tough one. But you see, God's judgment was about to be levied against uh, people who were, were not doing what God has called them to do. And that judgment had to come forward. And oftentimes, I get that question as a pastor is, is, why did God do that? Why did he harden certain hearts? We often go back to the book of Exodus, where we talk about Moses and, uh, and his interaction with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. The Bible actually says God hardened his heart. And I, this is something that's really tough. People want to know, why did this happen? Why is it that God sometimes allows the, the hardness of the heart? And I think what it comes down to is this is that both Pharaoh as well as the people of Israel at this point in life had already hardened their heart. They had already had themselves stiff-necked and refused to bow before a holy God. And God just allowed that to keep going. He reinforced it because he had judgment that needed to come forward because his glory, his holiness had to reign supreme. And it's not about the people of Israel. It's about God. It's not about the people of First Baptist Kenai. It's about God. It's about his ministry, his holiness, his glory, his love, his willingness to reach into a lost and dying world and saying, I'm going to bring you to me. It's our job to be his image bearers to a world that needs to see that. So our duty is to follow on and carry that holiness out. We are supposed to show that in our lives, our actions, and our words. Now, we see this here for Isaiah. You know, when I re- every time I read this, it's incredibly powerful to, to think about what was happening in the life of Isaiah. In our society, we all, every four to eight years, we have to go through a transition in power. And sometimes a good transition, sometimes a bad, depending upon which person you voted for. But that's so, not so for Isaiah. Isaiah was at the point where the king had died. And he was a good king by all accounts. He had some problems. He did have some issues with leprosy and some other things. He, he wasn't always where God wanted him exactly, but no human man is. But he had been reigning in Israel for 52 years. I'm 48. I can't even begin to imagine having a singular person in power and authority over the entire nation I live in for the entire time of my life. We don't know exactly how old Isaiah was, 
but we get the understanding that he was probably not 53 or 54. It's more than likely he was rather young in his ministry, probably in his mid-30s, which meant for the entirety of Isaiah's life, up to this point, he had had one single ruler and a level of stability in the nation that was unparalleled in the recent history of the kings of Israel. And the king was trying to guide the nation of Israel in a godly and proper way. And so you can imagine at this moment, as he's dealing with the grief and the loss and the sadness, as also dealing not only as an individual, but also as the pastor and the leader of a large congregation of people. He was a prophet. He was commanded to carry forth the word of God to the people. And so he knew that he felt his people's pain as he was looking at this where do we go now question. And it's in all of this that he's undoubtedly turning his attention, his eyes, his thoughts to the only place that he can find comfort, and that's God himself. And it's at this point that the vision comes to him because things are about to change. And God needed Isaiah to understand his plan and to be on board. Look what it says here when he says, I see the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exhausted, high and lifted up, with the train of his robe filling the temple. You know, first question people ask me is, how can you possibly see the Lord? Doesn't scripture say that no man can see the Lord and live? How did this happen? Well, I think it's pretty clear that while... Uh, he's describing what's happening there. He's not really describing God. We don't see a description of his face or his hair or his nose. We have a sense that his loftiness was high, his throne was powerful, and the train of the robe, the things that were happening around him. I mean, look at this, what he says. He says that he was glorious and divine, this king sitting on the throne in a way that he could understand. The people that were reading would recognize this. He talks about the hem of his robe. He talks about the seraphs, the, the winged uh, angels that were around his throne praising him constantly. He talked about the shaking of the building, but he doesn't give us a description of God. That's the best we have. And he gave it in a, in a, in a way that only a, a person who has understood what was happening in a, middle, in, in, a, in a Middle Eastern Oriental culture would understand. These kings would oftentimes have these thrones that were just massive and mighty. The description of Solomon's throne was pretty amazing if you look in history in that. And you think that, his, that the God's throne, the, king, the Lord's throne, would be even better and more amazing than that. My favorite part of this, though, is the train of his robe filling the temple. We don't really understand that. We, we, try, to, we try to grasp it. We don't have anything to comprehend that. Um, many years ago, I was, um, I was uh, reading another preacher who was uh, trying to bring out the same concept. And he was, well, he was a much older guy than I am. And, and he remembered seeing um, not only the coronation of... Uh, the, cor- the coronation of um, Queen Elizabeth, but also the wedding of uh, Princess Diana. And when the queen came in to take the throne, when for the Princess Diana came in to be married, they had this long robe and train that was trailed behind them. And the description was kind of interesting, and it likened that idea. But even more so, the idea that it's filling the entire room is pretty powerful. See, in those days, a king was known by the trail of his cloak, his robe. In fact, oftentimes what would happen in, in, in very expensive thread, the seamstresses would, 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 would recount and recall the deeds of the king 
on the train of his robe around the hem. And so the longer the train meant the more great and powerful the king was, the more wonderful deeds and things that he had done. And so the idea that this was filling the temple and overflowing is the sense you get in the Hebrew. The idea that this is, it was over in abundance was greater than anything that a human being could even possibly hope to transcend or comprehend. And then we see the seraphim. I love when you have a discussion of the seraphim and, and the idea of what they were doing. It says they were standing there and they were standing above and around him and they were constantly praising him. It oftentimes reminds me of, of when the, the, old king, the old medieval kings would travel through the land. They oftentimes would send people ahead, criers ahead, that would shout out the king is coming because they didn't want the common person to accidentally vis, uh, uh, look at the king. So when the royalty would pass by, they had to know to bow their heads. So the, the people going ahead would say, the king is coming. He is great. He's powerful. Don't look at him. You may die. And so that's kind of what you get the sense here is that the seraphim were constantly worshiping and praising and it was not only for the benefit of God but also for Isaiah who had to be there because he needed to be in the presence but he couldn't actually see face to face God because it would destroy him. And then we see holy, holy, holy. One of the greatest hymns of ever, we ever sing is holy, holy, holy. It's my most favorite one. Theologians like to call this the trisagion. It is the the three-time repeated holiness. It's the only time in Scripture that this use of three repetition is used in reference to God. Oftentimes you'll see it repeated twice, but hardly ever, if ever, three times. And the reason why that it is repeated three times is because it, we are, we're commanded to know that this holiness is the most important thing about God. It's his very essence. The seraphim claim that God is completely, totally, absolutely the holiest of holy. Holiness is the essence of his nature, and it is actually God himself. He is the supreme revelation of that holiness. God's absolute holiness reveals how separate and different and completely other he really is in comparison to all other aspects of the created world. And although the word doesn't mean sinless necessarily, but it does mean something so transcendent that sin can't even come close to it. God's holiness means that he is separate from everything that is sinful, utterly removed from the profane world in his glorious majesty. This is the image that he is trying to give us. And this is the part where it comes down to you. You say, well, why do we spend so much time looking at the holiness? Well, Isaiah wanted us to know what holiness was so we would understand his response. Look at verse 5. He said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Woe is me, for I am ruined. When I read that in the New American Standard, it's so woefully inadequate for what's really being said. He says, woe is me, as a prophet. And if you, give you, if you ever have, want to have an interesting study, I encourage you to, to, to look in every place in Scripture where a prophet says, woe. It's a pretty powerful thing. Woe is me, he says. He is pronouncing a judgment upon himself. In the presence and the light of the holiness of God, the complete 
and absolute holiness now revealed to him, the only thing he can say, and understand this, that Isaiah is probably one of the closest, most righteous individuals that the nation of Israel had at that time. He was a prophet called unto the Lord. He was already preaching and teaching and sharing the word of God. He was already doing the work of the ministry. He was willing and able to stand in the courtroom of God. He could step into that place without fear that God was going to strike him down because of his place and position in the whole realm of what God had called him to do. And yet when he was confronted with the absolute holiness of God, all he could do was pronounce judgment upon himself. He says, woe is me, I am ruined. I'm ruined. That word ruined is the word nifal. It means two things, actually. It means silenced or destroyed. In a lot of areas where it's translated in the Old Testament, oftentimes we see it either silenced or destroyed. And I was thinking about that for a minute, and I was thinking, well, both of those words would work in place of simply just saying, I'm ruined. To say that I am silenced, that makes sense, because in a moment, he talks about his lips, and in a few minutes after that, burning coals are placed on his lips, and he is forgiven of his sins. So maybe he's talking about silence, but then as I think about this, and I think of what it's like to come face to faith with something so amazing and so powerful and so transcendent that I can see who's completely shattered and undone. The word destroyed means utterly devastated, to be made completely non-existent. In the face of a holiness of God, in the face of everything that he was, he realizes his place. In a world just like ours that's extremely human-centric, where we focus on ourselves way too much, and I'm sure that Isaiah had the same problem that we have today. The idea that we focus more on ourselves than we do on anything else. And he realized just how irrelevant he really is. And how unneeded he is. How completely holy God was. And he's completely undone. He will never be the same again. But look at his response. His first response is his sin. His second response was the sin of his nation, his neighbors, his friends, his family. Spoken like a true pastor. Spoken like a true father. Spoken like somebody who understands what it's like to have the care and the concern of people around them, underneath them. Many of us are in positions of authority around us, whether it's authority in our home, whether it's authority in our workplace, whether it's an authority simply just in the place that we are. We understand what it's like to have people under us. And when you lead people in any way, shape, or form, their, their care, their needs, their Their things are held to you. Isaiah could not go a step further until he recognized that not only was he sinful, not only was he unable to come in the presence of God, but neither was anyone he knows. Look what he says here. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. That's my sin. That's on me. God, I want you to forgive me. And then he says, I live among people of unclean lips. Reminds me much of what Jesus said. When he said, it's not what puts into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of his mouth. Oftentimes, our sin comes out mightily. You know, the Bible uh, talks about who can approach the throne of God. Have you ever wondered that? I mean, Jesus says we have the privilege, once we accept him as our Savior, to be able to approach the, the, the throne of God, to be able to say that we are the sons and daughters of the living God. But the God, Scripture actually talks about exactly who and how we can come and approach God. 
And I'm sure Isaiah was thinking about this because by the time that Isaiah came into his, into his calling, the book of Psalms had already been written. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to flip over. Keep your finger in, in, in Isaiah. We're going to be back to that. But I want you to look at Psalm 15 because this question is asked in Psalm 15. It's one of the shortest Psalms in the entire book. I love it. Psalm 15 says this, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Who can approach you? Who can be around you? Who can come into your presence? Look what it says. He who walks with integrity. He who works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. And a lot of us are like, oh, I can do that, mostly. I can be integral, in, 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 I can have integrity, right? I can, I can work righteousness. This is easy. I can do that. Just give me a checklist. No problem. I can speak truth in my heart, maybe. I can speak truth in my lips, right? When people are looking and paying attention and writing down what I say. Um, well, let's get a little, a little difficult. Okay. He who does not slander with his tongue. Wow. Okay. Well, maybe he won't count that one. Maybe we can move on. Nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the interest or against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. It's a pretty, pretty tough list. You know, I could probably do it right up to that whole slander. I'm human just like everybody else is. How many times have we gotten angry at a coworker, a friend, a church member? And we go home that afternoon, that evening, and we spend a good deal of time breaking down what they said and did. Not because we're trying to tear them down, but, but we just want people to know what was going on, right? We have our justifications. We talk about people all the time when they're not around. And oftentimes, it's not the nicest things we say. And we oftentimes do evil to our neighbors, either by actively doing things against them or just passively not doing anything for them. How many times do we take up a reproach against our friends? How many times do we get offended by what somebody says or does around us? Because they're not where we think they need to be. It's a pretty powerful list. I would encourage you this week to look at the list in Psalm 15 and apply it to yourself. I would actually encourage you as you go into your prayer time before the Lord to write this list out and ask the Lord to reveal to you if you have done any of these things and ask the Lord to forgive you. See, the beautiful thing is, is when we ask God to forgive him, he's willing to forgive. Look what happened back in Isaiah if you flip back. Hopefully you had your finger there so it would be an easy flip. He says, I live among unclean people. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I am now in the presence of God. And look what he says. That was his confession. That was his saying, please forgive me. And we see one of the seraphim flew to him with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with the tongs. Now, the reason why we know the altar was burning, we know that the altar was there, not just because of the words that are being used, but we see in the previous part where it says that, that the smoke was filling the temple. 
That smoke is that incense. And, and if you understand the way the temple was laid out and there was the altar of incense right in front of the Holy of Holies and that incense was constantly burning, constantly making that, that, that sweet smell before the, before the Holy of Holies of God. That's what the reference is, is that there was so much smoke, so much sweet-smelling uh, goodness that represented the prayers of the, of the world filling the temple. And you see that he came and touched him and healed him and forgave him. The iniquity is taken away and your sin was no more. This was a powerful thing. You see, we're talking about this holiness. This is a dynamic holiness, not some static quality that just is. It's constantly in motion, but unchanging. Because Holiness is revealed in God's actions and his will. The more we see him, the more we see him move in our lives and work in the world, we see that his will is consistent with the holiness that is part of his essence. It might be better to say that the holiness is part of the inner distinctiveness of God and that it is revealed in all of his activity and that his glory is an outward manifestation of the brightness of his majesty and his holiness. I encourage you this week to look at Psalms 96 through 99. Wonderful Hebrew songs of praise about God's holiness. There are some other Psalms in Psalm 24, Psalm 29, and Psalm 97 that magnify the glory of God. Even John, the apostle, in John chapter 12 and verse 41, also magnified this holiness that is God. He did that because he truly believed, rightly so, that Jesus and God are one. We spoke that, we sang the words this morning about his holiness. We sang about the joyfulness of coming and how the angels stand around the altar constantly praying and praising to God. I think that as we start to look at this, we have to ask where do we begin? And I think the necessary first stop before any, anything can go any further as a church, as individuals, as individuals that are called according to the purpose of God, we should begin with a true confession of sin. In a few moments, we're going to be doing and, and partaking in the Lord's Supper. And as you know, the Lord's Supper is, is something that is a time of internal reflection as we seek to look at our outward actions and how they apply to the life, of God, life and, and ministry of what we're supposed to be doing with God. It is a time of true confession of sin and having an understanding of the glory and the holiness of an almighty God. We don't always have that as well as we should. This vision was not a transformative thing for Isaiah because Isaiah finally, for the first time, realized that, that God was holy. I mean, it's not like he just woke up to this and said, oh, yeah, God is kind of holy, isn't he? He knew this. He was trained. He understood. He had a revelation, revelation already that God was holy. In the very first verse, first chapter, he talks about a vision of God and, and, and God was high and lifted up on a throne. He already had that vision in his mind. He knew that God was holy. This was more transformative because he was drawn into the presence of God. He was revealed that his sin was a, was a burden and a blockage before he could step into the presence of God. And God had a task for him. He was transformed because he saw himself for the first time in contrast to a holy and perfect God. When was the last time we did that? It's so much easier to contrast us to our neighbor, right? 
It's so much easier to point ourselves to a person that, that is near enough to us, but not nearly as good as we think we are. It's always easy to do that. When I was a young man, I, used to, I had two really best friends, uh, Paul and William. Now, I know you find this hard to believe, especially in the state of my belly now, but there was a time when I was skinny. I mean, really skinny. I mean, so skinny that my parents worried about me. I graduated high school as 110 pounds. Little Caleb, if you ever take a, look, a moment to look at him, you know, I was skinnier than him. I wasn't as tall. I was better looking, but I was, you know, skinnier than he was. Well, you know, I'll throw it out there. And I like to hang around my friends, Paul and William, because my friends, Paul and William, were the exact opposite of me, right? Where I was skinny, they were not. And when I say not, I mean I could, I could fit both legs in one of theirs. I mean, they were just big boys, right? They were muscular, they were strong, they were tall. They weren't nearly as pretty as me. And I loved hanging around them because when I compared myself to them, I was a catch, right? Now, when I compare myself to somebody else, probably not. But I didn't compare myself to them and other people. I compared myself to the, to the lowest common denominator so that, so that I would be better. And, that's, and I felt good about myself. That's what we oftentimes do. We oftentimes compare ourselves to those that we consider less than ourselves. That's the wrong thing. How many times have we opened up the Word of God and we were so convicted because the image that we're reading about the God was so overpowering, so amazing, so powerful that we could only do what Isaiah did and just say, I'm, I'm, I'm undone. I can't go on. I can't do this. The work you've said before me is too much for me. I'm not the man you think I am. I'm not the woman you want me to be. I hide sin in my heart. How many of us are more like that? That's the way Isaiah was. Now, that's where we are. We need that vision of a holy God. But I warn you that if you actually pray that God will come to you, like, very much like Isaiah, understand that when he does that, he's got a job for you to do. And it's a big one. Now, if you go on to read what happened in the rest of it, verse 9 says, go and tell the people. Keep on listening, but don't perceive. He was told to tell the people, in verse 9, to go, keep on listening, but don't, don't understand. Keep looking, but don't understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. He was told to preach so that people wouldn't understand. That's weird, isn't it? One of the things that I've seen over the years as being a pastor, I'm now 22 some odd years into this, is I've seen folks falling away. I've seen families that were hard, hardcore into God. Something happened and derailed them and they're gone. I've seen pastors that stood in the pulpit and preached with a mighty hand and a loud voice and a strong eye and something happened in their life and they got their eyes off Jesus and they just walked away. I've seen a nation turn its back on the roots that it comes from. And I wonder if the call to Isaiah isn't a similar call to the preachers of today. We're preaching but the majority aren't understanding. We're teaching, we're showing, but the majority of the people refuse to even look. I mean, you take this holiday, for example. We focus all of our attention, seems like, in the, out there in what's going to buy for this person, who's going to get this, and whether or not we're going to wear a Santa suit on Christmas or not. 
very little discussion of the real gift that we received. But this is just the beginning. This is just part of it. I look at the highest level of our government and that list. Remember that list? Who can approach God? I want you to think about any congressman, any senator, any representative, any president, anybody in the position of authority and power that's in our nation and see if they can measure up to even one of these. Walks with integrity, works righteousness, speaks the truth in his heart, does not slander, does, uh, he does no evil to his neighbor, doesn't take up a reproach against a friend. Who that we elect and send to positions of authority could even measure up to even one of these standards? They're not. Oftentimes, this happens often when I talk to youth. Youth tend to be a lot more intuitive about the future than I think we are. We tend to be immune to it, and we just accept it. Oh, well, so-and-so's in office. I guess that's just the way it is. So-and-so's a politician, so his lips are moving, so he must be lying. Oh, that's just the way it is. But you talk to young people who are still young, and they want to see the world change. They feel like they can be a part of it. And sometimes they ask, and they ask the question, especially after a study on Revelation, uh, where, is, where is America in that study, right? Where is America? Well, I don't know about you, but I look at America and I ask myself this. Will we still be here as a nation when Christ returns? I have to say, if he doesn't come back really, really quick, probably not. We're in the final days, I think, of this culture that we've built up. Idols to self-indulgence, focusing more on our own lusts and the flesh and the eyes than anything that has to do with God. Now, in and out, in and through the ministry of Isaiah, there were always remnant. There was always a few people that heard. There was always those faithful that were chosen and pulled out. Later prophets would talk about that there would be a few people, remnant, that would be saved, that would be, would be preserved, but the rest of them were going to be destroyed and taken away. Truth is, and every pastor that I've ever known will be first to agree to this, that what we do here in our ministry is a remnant ministry. As much as we want to save the world, truth is there's only very few that will come. Now, I know that there are those out there that are, that are hardcore Calvinists, and I have no problem with you. I appreciate your point of view, and you're allowed to be a little bit wrong, and that's okay. <laughs> and I know Calvinists have this idea that, that God is sovereign, and so he's already planned and predestined and everything like that. And I'll, to true to course, the Bible does talk about predestination. It does talk about we were called and foreknown, and I'm, and I'm not going to deny any of that. But I think the challenge that we have, that many people that get into that focus that God knows everything, he's done everything, it's, he's in charge of everything, that we don't have to do anything, right? And so it's easy just to say, well, God's got it, no problem. Well, that's the case. Yes, God has it, he knows what he's doing, but he's chosen to use us, right? We are his representatives. We are his agents to move. He wants us to help him. He doesn't need us to help him. He wants us to be a part of it. You know, if I were to die tomorrow, my wife would be fine. I know that. She's a strong, independent woman. If you're crying out loud, she went to boot camp twice. She went to Army boot camp, then Navy boot camp. I tell everybody that, that she went to boot camp twice because the first time the military made her, the second time she just liked it a lot. So she really enjoyed it. She's a strong woman. And I know that she would be fine. But I also know my wife, and I know that she loves me with an intensity that I can't even begin to imagine back to her. I try, but I can't. And I know that, that although she wants 
to be with me until we grow old and die together. And our goal is really to die at the same time. If we can figure that out, it'd be really good. You know, not on purpose, sort of like a gradual fall asleep and God comes in and takes us. You know, things like that. We don't want someone to murder suicide. That would not be good. But, you know, we, we want... We want that idea because the reality is, is that she loves me so much that she really can't conceive of a life without me. I know she would be fine, but she wants me around her, and I want her around me, and I want to spend the rest of my life trying to show her how much I love her, and she wants, she wants to spend the rest of her life letting me show how much I love her, and that's good. It makes a good partnership. But you see, that's how Jesus is. You know, I mentioned this last week, and I mentioned it so quick, I don't know if any of us really got it, and I don't even know if the weight of it still is weighed into my soul. But think about this for a minute, that God's love is so huge, right? We talk about his holiness being so heavy and massive, and there's a heaviness to it, but there's that capstone on top of the holiness that is his love. And as holy as he is, he is that much more loving. And I don't understand how that works, but imagine the love that is so transcendent, so fantastic, so huge, so amazing, so fantastic that it makes the holiness seem equal to the love that he has and that he has all this love. And where is that love pointed at? It's pointed at you. He wants to spend all of eternity proving to you how much he loves you. Think about that for a minute. I've been asked by young people and old, what's heaven going to be like? I really don't know. And we can use these wonderful phrases. I know the Westminster Catechism says that we are called to, to was it, uh, glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that should be enough, right? We ought to say that when we get to heaven, if we're going to stand around his throne and just sing praises all time for all eternity, that that ought to be enough. And, and yes, I'm not saying it wouldn't be, but I think that it's a, such a weak view of eternity. Because he loved us so much that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, Jesus himself said, people are willing to die for a righteous man, right? I mean, you guys know some really good guys in the congregation. There are several of you guys that, that if, if, if a gunman came up and pointed a gun, I, I might be interested in stepping in front of you. Might. But think about the person you hate the most in your life. Think about the person that, is, that potentially may have even tried or wants to see you dead or fired or, de- or, or just debased or just, they just hate you so much that you can say, this guy, this gal is my arch nemesis, right? You guys have any of those? I have, I've had like 12 yesterday, so yeah. We have those. Now imagine stepping in front of a bullet for them. Would we do it? My first thought is, what about my kids? What about my chickens? What about my dogs? Who's going to take care of them? Right? We don't think about the person we're dying for. Because suddenly it turns inside. Because the person we're dying for is not worth it. Well, let me tell you something. None of you, myself included, was worth even a drop of the blood of Christ. He's far too transcendent, far too holy, far too perfect. Fortunately for us, God values us much different than we value ourselves. 
And he sees something within us that we can't even begin to understand. And so when he says these words, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, we can look at that and say, thank you. Thank you. We can begin to understand what it was like for Isaiah to come face to face, confronted, assaulted, every sense that he had, overwhelmed with the holiness of God. And all he could say is, I'm undone, I'm ruined, I'm destroyed, I am, I am devastated, I'm shattered. If your sin doesn't make you feel that way, then you need to recheck how you look at yourself. Now, the enemy would love for you to focus on the sin, right? The enemy wants us to say, oh, yeah, I'm a sinner. I can't do anything. I can't, God can never forgive me. But see, that's, that's the beauty of the story. Because it's not about you, it's about God. Jesus Christ came so that we might be able to know God in his person, his holiness, his mercy, his grace. He came so that he might be able to usher us into the presence of God, to present us to God, holy and righteous. Not our righteousness, but his upon us. And this is where we are this morning. Those of you that are sitting here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, your personal Savior, I encourage you to get that taken care of because eternity is an awful long time. And we've talked about heaven, but we can't talk about heaven without the opposite place. And let me tell you something, hell is not a place you want to send anyone. I hear that phrase all the time in the community where people are told to go to a big lake of fire. Guys, you don't want anybody to go there. And you don't want to be there either. We have a heaven to strive for and a hell to run from. This morning, we're going to bow our heads in just a few seconds. And we're going to pray. And I'm going to ask you to get your heart right with God, one way or the other. If you're not saved... That's the start. If you are saved, I guarantee you, you've done something or not done something this week that would be considered sinful in the eyes of God. At least one thing. And I ask you to ask God to forgive you. Because when we open up those trays and we hand out the bread and the juice, we're not just doing that because we want to feed you. We're doing that because we want to remember the sacrifice that Christ did on the cross. And it's a powerful sacrifice. Paul says there are some people that have taken this Lord's Supper and they took it in the wrong way. And God took them home. The implication of Paul's words is that the people that died after taking incorrectly the Lord's Supper, he describes them as Christians, not as non-believers, although I think that's a danger too. You say, well, God wouldn't do that. Let's look just for a second back through a, a list of few people that, that, that they didn't wake up in the morning thinking God was going to end their life because they took the holiness of God for granted. Think of the, the young man named Uzzah. You remember him? Everybody knows Uzzah, right? He was everybody's favorite character in the Bible. He's only mentioned in one place, and it was during a time when David was trying to bring the ark into Jerusalem. You remember that? And they built this wonderful cart, beautiful cart, brand new, painted and scraped and built, and they were going to bring it with brand new oxen of cup to the hill, and in the middle of all that, which, you know, the, 
the, the ark started to jostle and move. And Uzzah, who was driving the cart, in a, trying to keep the ark of God from falling into the mud and getting all dirty, what does Uzzah do? Pow! Puts his hand on it. Dead. Why? Well, there are so many reasons why. The biggest reason is that nobody involved in that horrible scenario understood the holiness of God. Because if they had of, they never would have even thought about putting it on a cart because that's not how you carry the ark. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. God of the Old Testament, he's, he's kind of rough, right? Because God of the New Testament is much more kinder and gentler. We like to believe that, don't we? Because John says that God is love, but Isaiah says, woe is me, right? So we like the love side because love is fun and frilly and, and has flowers. We really like flowers, right? We don't like the, oh, we like the, oh. Well, I remind you of two of the other more favorite characters in the New Testament. Was it Sapphira and Ananias? Tom, am I getting that spelled and pronounced right? Those are the two people that, well, you know it, yeah. It's the two people in the book of Acts, and they were, they were Christians, right? They loved God, at least they said they did. I mean, I don't really know the inner workings of their heart, but they said they loved Jesus so much so they wanted to give a big donation to the church, right? You remember that? And they said, we are going to sell this property, and we're going to give it to the church. And they sold the property, and they're like, whoa. Oh, that's a lot of money. We didn't think we were going to get that for it. And instead of giving the whole amount, they gave some of the amount, right? We don't know exactly the amount. We're not giving dollars and cents. We don't know if it was 20%, 50%, 70%. We don't have any idea about that. But they promised to give something to a holy God that belonged to him to begin with, and then they reneged and took it back. They didn't recognize the holiness of God. And when they call, were called on the carpet for it, what happened to them? Dead. Now, 22 years of doing this, never seen anybody die taking the Lord's Supper. But as I often like to think, that's the first time for everything. So, make sure your heart is right. Make sure you know that you're ready to take this. We believe in an open communion here. We don't, we don't require membership or you know, um, promising your firstborn into the ministry and like that before you take communion. But we do require that your heart is right. And nobody's going to judge you if the plate passes by and you just say, I'm not ready to take it, and simply let it go. Parents, I'm going to leave it up to your best judgment. If you know your kids and you feel like they're saved and they follow Jesus, then feel free to let them partake. If you feel like they don't quite understand it, then maybe it's the time for them to pass by and wait later this afternoon or this evening, you can discuss to them what it means to be saved and what it means to partake of the communion time. For the rest of us, we're going to open up a word of prayer. And I'm going to ask you to look into your heart and ask God to reveal you if there's anything that might stand in the way of partaking in this table. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. Lord, we know that the holy, your holiness is so much greater than anything we can imagine. And we know that there's no way, no way that we can ever measure up by our own works. But Father, we know and recognize that it's not our works, it's yours that matters. And that your activity and willpower is clearly seen through the acts you've done, both in creating this great universe and world that we live in, to simply sending your Son, so that we might know you better. Father, we ask that you will guide our hearts and thoughts and minds this morning as we seek to understand you and love you more. Father, I ask that you will open up opportunities for us in the coming moments to ask your forgiveness. Father, I ask that you'll bring to our mind, our hearts, and our thoughts anything that might stand in the way. And Father, if there is those things, allow us the privilege to ask your forgiveness, 
Father, you said in your word that if we're faithful to, for, to repent and ask forgiveness, you're faithful to forgive. We know that you will, and we're very thankful for it. Father, we ask in this time as we prepare for the Lord's Supper that you cleanse us of all iniquity, that you allow us to partake it freely. And Father, I just ask that you be merciful for those that take it unaware. I'm not ready to see anybody in here step into glory unprepared. Father, help us to have a greater understanding of your holiness, your love, your mercy, and your grace. We ask this now in the name of your Son and our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to ask our gentlemen that have been talked to this morning to come forward as we take a few minutes with this Lord's Supper. I want to mix the candles up from the bed. All right. So we have this opportunity now to begin this process. We've talked about it. Now it's time to do it. Pass this around. On that evening, as Jesus was preparing that meal, as he was looking at what it was going to take to demonstrate his love towards us, I find it interesting that he chose the, the imagery of a meal to bring that message out. When he picked up the bread, that was part of the meal, it was part of the discussion. He simply said, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. He's bringing back Isaiah. He's talking about by his stripes we are healed. He was he was bringing out all that information and in, in, in knowledge to the disciples at the time. They didn't get it then, but they understood in a few hours later. This bread represents the body. It's not his body. It doesn't magically transform into it. But when we take it, we do this so that we can remember the sacrifice he made, the pain that he suffered and endured on the cross. I'm going to ask my brother Dan, if he will, to bless this part of our Lord's Supper. Yes, sir. Sorry.
You mentioned a moment ago how hard it is to stand up here in front of folks and perform music or say words. Praying in public is tough. But Dan, you said something that was powerful. You know, the Lord's Supper is not always about just remembering what Christ did for us. It's also about being in communion with our friends and our fellow man next to us, our neighbors. We are all part of the body of Christ. And being able to be a part of that means that we celebrate together. Scripture tells us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And you guys are here. God's chosen, his elect. He wants you here. He wants you to be a part of this. So as we're taking this, I encourage you, the bread, as we look at it, as we eat it right now, let's do this in remembrance of his body that was shed for us, broken for us. We've talked about the cup quite a bit. If you've been here and had Lord's Supper with us in the past, you know that the cup is a a very precious part of um, the whole process. When Jesus picked it up and said, this is my cup, it represents my blood that will ratify the new covenant. We know that he was talking about Jeremiah 31, 31. We know that he was bringing out all of the relevant information that we needed to know, but he was applying it in a very personal and practical way to the apostles. They needed to know that their sin was driving him to the cross. Not just theirs, but everybody that they know. Everyone they didn't know. Scripture teaches that God doesn't wish any to perish, but all to come to him. John says that for God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son. These are powerful images. When Jesus picked that cup up, that's what he referred to. And ask my brother Vince, if you will, to bless this part of the communion. Gentlemen, please.
I, like many of you, love a good story. I love a story of heroes and dragons. Stories of fair maidens trapped in towers that need to be rescued. And the lengths at which men or people will go to rescue those that they love. Many of the best stories mingle in tragedy with triumph. When the disciples were sitting there around the table that last night, Jesus was recounting a bit of tragedy for him. You can go and sit back down, thank you. The idea that he was going to go to the cross and die. Die for us. It's a powerful image. It's an image that I think is something that I don't know if any of us will ever truly comprehend. And I think about the day that this happened, and I wonder, in a good story, you always try to find yourself in the story. You always try to be able to put yourself in there. And and I wonder, if I were one of the disciples, how would I have responded? Would I have been like Peter, who drew a sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest? Would I have been like John Mark, who ran so fast that his clothes were snatched off of him in the middle of the night? Would I have trembled and ran or stood tall and been cut down? See, we can do that because we can imagine our response as humans to what Jesus said and did. But none of us can understand what Jesus had to go through. In almost every story, the hero doesn't really know what's going to happen in the end. Jesus did. He knew what the cross meant. He knew what the pain represented. I mean, he was God. He caused to grow the very tree that was used for the timbers that he would be nailed to. He gave the skill to the blacksmith that pounded out the nails. He knew. We don't. And that's why it's important for us every time we take this that we try to remember exactly what it meant when he went on the cross for us. So I encourage you as we take this cup that we take so we do so in remembrance of him. I'm going to ask my brother Mike if you will I know you're not feeling good, and I hope your voice is still strong. If you could close this time of Lord's Supper with prayer, and we'll ask our worship team to come up, and we'll close the service. Thank you, Mike.